and came to our church. So we met our church and our, our school for the first time that year in that first graduating class. There was this girl who was graduating from eighth grade that year who kind of looked at me a little cross-eyed only because she had only known Pastor Mason who had been there before. She grew up with him. So she didn't know what to make of this new guy. And uh, she turned out to be the first, the first student to go all nine years at the Willett Seventh-day Adventist School. She went from kindergarten to eighth grade. In fact, it's a record that can't be broken because they haven't had a kindergarten there forever. And they probably won't ever again. So. But uh, that, uh, that girl that looked at me cross-eyed was Sarah Ramming. So I told her earlier today, I said, she's been leading me to this place, to the throne of grace, for 16 years now. And uh, my first Sabbath here, I got up and looked up, and there she was. I thought, wow, God did that just for me. (laughs) The thing about the kingdom of heaven is that nothing happens by chance or accident. The people that uh, were leading us today, Greg's song team that were leading us today, from the from before they were born, they were in they were going to be gifted to be here to do this to at, at this day. And everybody who had anything to do with worship today, especially you. The kingdom of the world relies on advertising and strategic planning and all those things, which are good things to do when you're working for the kingdom of heaven. Good things to do, but we don't rely on that for the results. We rely on the God of the kingdom of heaven to have us here right now. None of us are here by accident. None of us are here probably even because we plan to be here. We may think that we are here because we plan to be here. But I think uh, God had more to do with you and I being together today to be able to hear that he's waiting for us and that we can wait on him. And uh, it's it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to live in the kingdom of heaven Because I think if I had to live completely in the kingdom of the world, I think I would have packed it in a long time ago and said, uh, I'm going to find some way out, some way out. This whole series started by noticing, Pastor Walt noticing that Matthew is the only writer to refer to God's kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdom of God, all the other gospel writers, and even in Revelation, John refers to it as the kingdom of God. Matthew is the only one. We, We speculate again because Matthew has this strong desire to teach his Jewish audience how Jewish Jesus really was. That in a lot of ways, Jesus is the Jew. Because he came before there were any other Jews. The portrait of Jesus as rabbi is vividly painted. Vividly painted. uh, Even more so than any of the other uh, Gospels. Uh, I pointed out to you that Matthew uses this rabbinic form of argument called midrash. And, And midrash is an art of taking scripture and having it argue with scripture in order to be able to make your point. You gotta be good at it. You have to know the scripture. The, the most powerful one, and, and he uses it through the Gospel of Matthew all the time, the most powerful one was he actually used it once to, and when he did, he shut them up. Okay, he shut the best at Midrash up. It's like he, he uh, you know, he, he, he became the Midrash champion that day. There was, there was nothing else to do. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question, what do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said what? 
And we've talked about this before, the son of David, they, what the kind of Messiah that they were expecting, the kind of king that they think is the king of the kingdom of heaven, and that is a Messiah like David, one that's going to come and, and uh, uh, free them from bondage to the Romans, a military Messiah, if you will. And Jesus says, how is it then that David in the spirit, okay, so is there any doubt what influence David is under when he's about to say what he's about to say? Jesus is making a point. David in the spirit being directed by who? Directed by God. And when he wrote in this psalm, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David says, the Lord said to my Lord, be at my right hand and I'll put your enemies, my your enemies under your feet. Okay, so it's not David that was going to do the conquering. So David is talking about the Messiah. God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. By the way, where is Jesus right now? At the right hand of God, right? So Jesus, so Jesus says, David calls him Lord. How can he be his son? That's Midrash, by the way. You can see why it's fascinating, right? I would have loved to live back there because that's all they do all day. Forget application. Forget application. Let's just sit around and talk about this stuff because this is so cool. You know? And no one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day any, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Midrash champ. Bam! See, in order to do Midrash, you had to know the scriptures. So if you're going to take on Jesus who actually wrote the scriptures, I, I think you're in trouble. And they were. And they were. What's interesting is that this, the Midrash that Jesus uses is Psalm 110, and he says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. You see Jesus quoted it word for word. But look what verse 2 says. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter. Okay, speaking about the Messiah, your mighty scepter. And it rules where, though? It rules in the midst of your what? In the midst of your foes. See, the kingdoms have crossed. We live in the midst of the enemies, yet called to be like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, we talked about that last week. We live in the realm, if you will, the geographical realm of the kingdom of, of, of the world, which plays by a completely set of, different set of rules. But the kingdom of heaven, played by a different set of rules than the kingdom of the world, we're yet here. Jesus rules amongst his what? Amongst his enemies. Here we are. And remember the parable that we studied a couple weeks ago. Weeds and wheat all in the same field together. The kingdom does not separate itself from the world that it's trying to win. The kingdom is amidst the world that it's trying to win. And by influence, quiet influence, by the way, yeast and hidden pearls and hidden seeds, we then make, well, we don't make the transformation. We plant and we look and we put and we, and we exist with. And we try to love as we have been loved. And then we let the Father do what the Father is going to do with every heart in the kingdom of this world. You rule in the midst of your enemies. So what's the hardest concept? You and I being citizens of the kingdom, trying to live by kingdom rules, if you will. What's the hardest concept for us to overcome? I think it's this, first and last. I think that is the hardest concept for us to overcome. Because I know what the world thinks about first and last. 
But the kingdom of heaven thinks about it different. Greatest and least, first and last. In the kingdom of heaven, who is first? The last. And who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The least. It's exactly the opposite. And if you think this kingdom, the kingdom of the world, operates this way, you haven't flown lately. You know, I don't fly too often. And I don't know if I'm really thankful for that. It means that I don't travel much. And, but I don't fly too often, and I think it's a blessing. Okay, because I only fly about twice a year. And every year, every year, the first gets more urgent to be first. I want you to think of how... St- I'm sorry, I almost said stupid. I was admonished today for calling myself stupid. She didn't like that. Think about... What's another word then, Beth? Think it's silly. I like silly. Okay, think about how silly this is. That if you have a boarding pass that has your seat on it, why do you have to rush to get there? One of my favorite comedians says, they all rush to the gate. I gotta get on there! You're gonna get on there. I gotta get on there now! Why? That boarding pass says you're seated in aisle 17, you know, row 17, window. Nobody's gonna take it. But I know what they're competing for now. They're not competing for their seat. You know what they're competing for? Overhead bin space. Because every year I go to fly when I don't, you know, when I go, I, I look at the, some of the carry-on that people are carrying on. They're carrying dead yaks on there. That was what that comedian said. It's not my line. Joel and I saw a guy uh, in, in uh, Santo Domingo nearly getting a fist fight with the uh, attendant because the attendant said, we're going to have to check that bag. And he goes, no. And he goes, all right, go measure it. <laughs> you know, the little uh, measuring box that they have for it. He literally is sitting on it to try to get it to go in there and say, see, see, it got in like that far. And the guy says, you're going to have to check it. He was livid, livid. So if you think the kingdom of the world operates the first is last and the last is first, you haven't flown lately. And I'm not trying to make it sound like it's us and them. I get caught up in the same thing. I get caught up in the same thing. See, I I only have my, my backpack and it fits fine under the seat. It fits fine under the seat. And I'm good with that. And I feel better about myself. You know, everyone's scrambling for overhead space. They're shoving luggage that, you know, probably should have been shipped, not even flown, because that's how big it is. You know, they're shoving it up there, you know. And I'm just sitting there feeling real morally superior. But as soon as the plane pulls up to the gate, man, I grab that and run as fast as I can, and I get, like, that far, boom. And then I'm just standing there. Silly. Silly. Because now it's, i got to get off. You're going to get off. <laughs> it's like, what, you know, after a few minutes, they're going to close the door, make you stay on the plane? <laughs> well, i got to go to L.A. now. Yeah. Anyway. Only weird NASA astronaut nuts can tell you who the crew of Apollo 12 was. Why? Because they went second. Everybody can tell you the crew of Apollo 11. Well, almost everybody. shouldn't say that, especially when it's coming up on 50 years. <laughs> but who can tell you the crew of Apollo 12? I can, but, you know, that's me. Sometimes first define what a product is called. How many here has soaked in a jacuzzi lately? 
Probably almost none of us have soaked in a jacuzzi lately because 99% of all hot tubs are not made by jacuzzi anymore, but jacuzzi was the first. When I was little, you could order a Coke in a restaurant whether they served Coke or not. I'll have a Coke, which meant what? Whatever cola they got, they're going to bring it to you. Why? Because Coke was what? First. Sometimes being first or the perception being first sticks even though the reality is the products aren't that good anymore. Louisville Slugger thought aluminum bats were going to be a fad. A fad, if you will. Okay. So when they finally decided to get in the game, the game passed them by. Now in the years ensuing, it is caught up. But Louisville Slugger actually had to file for bankruptcy because they were only giving wooden bats out to any professional because they were the only people using wooden bats. The greatest is the least. The last will be first. We've looked at the kingdom's rules. We've looked at who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Quiz here, pop quiz. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Children. Children, okay, which are the least in the kingdom of the world, but most in the kingdom of heaven. But I want to talk about the least in the kingdom of heaven. I want to take a look at the least. What does the least citizen tell us about the kingdom itself and the rules that it plays by and what it takes to belong? As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about who? About John. John the, the gospel writer or who? John the Baptist. If you read the verses that come before this, John has sent his disciples from prison to ask Jesus if he is the Messiah or should he look for another. And, and Jesus tells him something, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but he says, what did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? John the Baptist was incredibly popular. People flocked from all over to, to see him, which, which was kind of strange because you never hear John the Baptist doing anything like performing any miracles or anything like that. What's the only thing that he's doing? He's baptizing. And people are flocking from all over to be baptized by him. It's strange. No miracles, no healings. Don't even talk about what a great preacher he is, which I'm sure he was because he took the opportunity to preach. I'll tell you one group that didn't like to hear him preach, those are the ones he was preaching about. He used terms like brood of vipers and you know things like that. But anyway, what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are where? Royal palaces, okay? The kings of the world wear soft robes. They wear soft clothes. They have all the trappings of a monarchy. But John? No. John's in the wilderness, John's in the wilderness, and we know that he doesn't wear soft robes. His robe is made of what? It's made of camel hair. Okay? Made of camel hair. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. Yes, he is, but he's even what? He's even more, he says, even more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women... Uh, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. So who is the greatest in the kingdom of the world? According to Jesus, anybody born of a woman, who is the greatest? John the Baptist is. But then he adds that line, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than who? Is greater than him. So he just named the leastest, I can make up words, my last name is Webster, the leastest, 
the leastest citizen in the kingdom of heaven happens to be the greatest citizen of the kingdom of the world. And by the way, John the Baptist didn't play by the kingdom of the world's rules, not one iota. Not one iota. And actually, that's what I think Jesus is talking about. But he says, he is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Wow, John the Baptist? Really? Really? Kind of makes sense. Kind of makes sense. Who was Jesus' first disciple? Who's Jesus' very first disciple? No. John the Baptist. He's the very first one. He's the first one to recognize him. And that's a good answer. I think it was Dave, right? It's a great answer. But who was it that introduced Andrew to Jesus? John the Baptist, because Andrew was one of John's disciples. So the very first disciple of Jesus was John the Baptist. Here's the tricky part, though. How can John be a follower of Jesus when John came first? John is about three or four months older than Jesus, right? He's his cousin, probably a second cousin. John came first. John shows up, just shows up on the scene, starts to baptize. And when people are asking him, who are you? What are you doing here? He says, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make way, make straight the paths of the Lord. John came what? First. So in the kingdom of the world, how can you be a follower if you came first? I think that's what Jesus is addressing right here. It's a good question. John answers it, by the way. John tells you who he is. This is he of he of whom is said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me. Because what? Because he was before me. Notice John's argument is, I know your argument is that I came first, so I can't be a follower of anybody because I came first. I know that's what your argument is. He says, but I'm telling you, he came way ahead of me. See, but they don't get it. They don't understand it because they're firmly entrenched thinking they're living in the kingdom of heaven, but they're playing by the kingdom of the world's rules. In fact, the only reason they're hanging around John is because he's popular right now. The Pharisees would show up, the church would show up after John has already become popular because they're thinking, they're saying, hey, if this is really uh, something happening, then I have to be involved because I'm the only one who knows the signs of the times. So when they do show up, that's when John looks at them and says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What are you doing here? You get where I'm at? You get what I'm saying? The world says John can't be a follower because he came first. John's argument is, I really didn't come first. He came ahead of me. That's his answer to the argument. See, I want to take a look at John the Baptist today because, again, I I think it's important to know that if you're going to want to live in the the kingdom of heaven, if you want to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, I think you should know that when, when we do get there and we lay down our citizenship papers, John the Baptist is already there and his has been stamped what? Least. So I think it's a good idea to take a look at John the Baptist. Let's take a look at what the least in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And I want to do it from the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John has a reason, has a reason to kind of diminish the Baptist role. When I say diminish, here's what I'm talking about. In all the other Gospels, he's referred to as much loftier titles. In Matthew, he's Elijah of the end time. In fact, Jesus says that he's Elijah, fulfilling Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5. Elijah comes first. Elijah comes before the Messiah. At your Passover Seder, you leave an empty chair for who? For Elijah, because he's got to precede the salvation of the Passover. 
It's clear in the prophecy. Elijah comes before that last great terrible day of the Lord. You with me? So he's got much loftier titles in the other Gospels. Okay, much loftier titles. In John, he seems to want to diminish the Baptist role. He's here described only as a voice. In fact, John even denies being Elijah. Look what he says. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, what? I am not. I could do a whole sermon that John says he's not Elijah. Jesus says he is. I'd love to be in on that argument. Could we spend 40 minutes talking about that? Not today. Are you the prophet? He answered what? He doesn't even consider himself a prophet. When by biblical definition he's a prophet, he goes out into the wilderness, not on his own, but because God called him and said, this is what you were born to do, man. Today is the day. In fact, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is a chapter written about this man who just showed up in Qumran one day. He wanders out of the desert. He practices with the Qumran people. He studies. He prays. He goes through the mikvah. And, and, and over a couple of months, he doesn't say much. They don't know who he is. And then one day he just disappears. And everybody speculates that it actually was John the Baptist. He came. He trained. And then God said, time. And he goes to those waters and begins to baptize, pronouncing this message. By definition, that's a prophet. A prophet is simply a messenger from God. Anybody who has a message from God is a what? But he even denies that. Are you a prophet? No. Then who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, the prophet Isaiah said. He quotes one scripture from Isaiah. It doesn't say that he's Elijah. All he calls himself in John is the what? The Voice. Good name for a TV show. I'd much rather watch this one. The Voice. The Gospel of John spends emphasis on minimizing the Baptist. Why? Why does he have to do this? Remember, Gospel of John is written nearly 100 years later after the other Gospel. I'm always exaggerating. I'm always pushing it back. But it's anywhere from the year 98 to the year 110 which means it's happening at least 75 to 85 years after the fact. So the movements have had 85 years to work their ways out. Nearly 100 years of the first century of the Christian movement, of the way, if you will. It's had nearly 100 years to work its way out. And when John writes his gospel, he says, the church needs to hear this. Why do they need to hear a diminished role for the Baptist? I think you'd find it interesting to see why. Because the world said John was what? John was first. John was first. And what does the world do with the first? And what are they still doing with the first by the time John writes his gospel nearly a hundred years later? He's fighting this. John fights it. John tells them, the one who's coming after me, I'm not worthy to what? I'm not worthy to untie a sandal. And then later in chapter 3, after the whole discourse of, of Jesus and Nicodemus and for God so loved the world, the Baptist says, he must increase and I must what? And I must decrease. Wow. The first is telling them, look, I understand what the pull is. I understand what the world says. The world says the first is first. He said, but I only came here to prepare my way for him. And now that he's here, It's time for me 
to decrease. He's doing everything he can to get these followers. The Gospel of John emphasizes the humility of the Baptist. See, sometimes we modern readers, we get the idea that the Baptist appeared out of nowhere, baptized Jesus, and then just faded off into history. Bible gives us a clue as to what's happening, though, in that first hundred years. How many of John's disciples went to follow Jesus? How many? Um, two. Compared to how many he must have had. Right? The way, that they, the way the Bible describes it, he's got hundreds of people following him. He's got hundreds of people that he's baptizing. And most of them are baptized and they just hang around with him like they would any other traveling rabbi. But according to Scripture, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Andrew was the first one. The other one isn't named. And Andrew happens to go get his brother. Now we're up to what? Three, but Peter wasn't even a follower of John that we know of. So now you got about three after verse 41. In John chapter 3, a bit of time has passed. I'm not sure how much. It might be even as much as a year, okay? A year after the Messiah has showed up, a year after Jesus is coming and starting his mission. And you find this. John was also what? John's still baptizing. John's still baptizing. As a matter of fact, the disciples are disturbed by this. And they point it out to Jesus. Jesus says, don't worry about it. Let them do what they're going to do. But this is nearly a year later. John is still baptizing because water was abundant and people kept coming. Where are they coming? To John. I want you to picture that Jesus is actually baptizing right up the river. But who are the people still going to? Do you think the argument is playing out? Well, they got these two guys. They're both great preachers. I'm going to go to the one who's first. Nearly a year later. See, when Jesus started on this discourse about John, we already had read this. Okay, we already had read this. But according to these, John still has disciples well into Jesus' public ministry. When John heard in prison that the Messiah, what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his what? His disciples. He still has disciples. Even though they heard him say everything that he's already said. He's already told them about increasing and decreasing. He's already told them that I'm merely a voice. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not even a prophet. And yet he can't shake loose. He's he's now in prison. And they're still what? They're still following him. They're still hanging around. And he said, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Do you think that maybe one of the reasons? I always used to think he was so discouraged by being in prison that his faith is wavering and now he's questioning whether or not Jesus is really the Messiah. But could one of the reasons why he's questioning why Jesus is still the Messiah is that he can't get rid of his disciples. They won't go follow him. So maybe Jesus isn't what he has cracked up to be. Why are they still hanging around me? Maybe he sent them away to get rid of them. (laughs) Go, go. He wakes up. You guys are still here? I told you. Increase, decrease. The The greatest is the least. The least is the greatest, so forth and so on. But they're not listening to me. They're not listening to me. 
You can go on a little further. What was Apollos' problem? That he couldn't become a preacher in the way in the book of Acts. And this is a couple of years later now. There came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. What are they saying about him? He's eloquent. He's a great preacher, but he can't join the way. Why? Why? Because he only has the baptism of what? The baptism of John. He's been John the Baptist's follower. When Prisca and Aquila hear him preach, they say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I don't know what he said. But it tipped them off saying, you know what? You don't have it all yet. He's only been baptized by who? He's still following John. He might even be still teaching that John is the Messiah. Later, Paul meets 12 men in Ephesus. And he says, he's, he's inquiring them, what's going on? He says, uh, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Holy cow. Now they're running into John's disciples. Even that far along in the book of Acts, John still got what? Still got disciples. He's been dead for at least five years now. Are they waiting for his resurrection? It could be. We don't have any writings. We don't have any teachings that we know of on papyrus. But scripture at least indicates that something's going on here. Did you know today there's a small group in southern Iraq called the Mandeans? And if you look at their Torah, their scripture, their, and you begin to trace their lineage back, it doesn't go back to Muhammad. It doesn't go back to Abraham. It doesn't go back to Jesus. Guess who it goes back to? John the Baptist. To this day. All because the world says what? John came first. He has to be the one. He came first. In the world, the first is the greatest. It seems incredible to me. Incredible that even today you would have followers of John and that they would fail to understand the superiority of the Messiahship of Jesus. There are quite a few reasons, though. Quite a few reasons. I'm definitely not going to call a follower of John stupid. In fact, my wife won't let me call anybody stupid anymore. So, and number one reason is because John came first. And I know maybe that's a little hard for us as Christians today to get our head around. But think of uh, us in our everyday lives. What does first hold for us? Even we believe that the first was better, don't we? We all do. We believe that the first was better. Firstborn sons, to this day, firstborn sons. I was the first grandchild born on my side of the family. Spoiled rotten. My first birthday, you should see all the gifts and everything else. We got a picture of my brother's first birthday. He's got a cake. Now, I am cooler than my brother, but I don't think it was because I was born first. But John came first. Old paths are preferred. Once you get on a path, how easy is it to get us off of it? Jesus even used this principle in answering a question about divorce being lawful in Matthew 19. Remember, he said, is it lawful for, for, Jesus said it isn't lawful to divorce. They said, but Moses said we could have a certificate of divorce. Jesus goes all the way back to the garden and says, it wasn't always so. He goes back to what came what? What came first. 
what came first. So since John came first, many Jews would assume he was greater. Even after John spends his last days trying to tell them, no, I must decrease. I must decrease. There are some other reasons. A lot of Jews felt there should be a priestly Messiah and a kingly Messiah. You know, and which one would be greater? The kingly or the priestly, if that was the argument. Which one would be greater? No, the priestly. You know why? Aaron came first. Hundreds of years before Saul became king. So do you ever wonder why the New Testament spends so much time then talking about Jesus being a king and priest? He's trying to tell them, look, your argument is that others came first. I'm trying to tell you... Jesus came first. And what's, well, I don't know what, what's cool or not cool. I'm not sure what's, uh, that I'm going to label it yet. Is that Jesus understands. He understands that. He understands that he can't get them to understand that he came first. And so Jesus is even allowing, even if you don't accept that I am God, very God, and that I came first, okay, I'll argue your argument. I'll meet you where you are in order to bring you where I am. So it's the pull. So John's humility is actually remarkable, isn't it? John being able to pull this off is actually remarkable. How much easier it would have been just to accept the accolades and, and continue to grow his movement? How much, what was the temptation to do that? Even after he can't get rid of these disciples, he can't shake them. And he's got to be wondering, okay, all right. What do I do now? So he sends the disciples to Jesus. Ask him. Ask him. See, I think that God was always trying to pick this apart. He's trying to pick this, this one thing, this, this first is best uh, argument apart throughout, throughout Israel's entire history. He picks Isaac. Isaac was born first or second? First. I mean second. <laughs> Esau would kill me. Jacob. It's not Esau. Jacob. <laughs> Second, Isaac came after Ishmael. Ishmael would definitely kill me. Okay. Jacob or Esau? Jacob, born second. David, born what? Fifth, I think. Fifth or sixth. Samuel goes down all of his brothers. <laughs> in fact, they're in line, rated what? Oldest to what? Youngest. In fact, they didn't even bring the youngest in. Do you have any other sons? Because these guys ain't it. Well, I got one, but that's ridiculous. He's just a kid. He's out there. Samuel lays eyes on him and says, that's him. And here's God's voice. The kingdom of the world looks on the outside. And they pick who? The first. I pick the last. Because I look on the inside. So John has the entire kingdom of the world pulling at him and telling him he must be number one because he was first. But Jesus says, no, he may be greatest in all the kingdom of the world. And by the way, when he says that he was greatest in the kingdom of the world, did he have more money than everybody else? Did he have more power than everybody else? Did he exhibit that he had more power than anybody else? No. All he had was what was on his back his kind of weird diet and the wilderness for his home. 
And Jesus says, that's the greatest in the kingdom of the world. And I think he says it because of the humility that had to be required for him to pull this off. I think John gives you a clue, though, of why he's considered the least. And we'll wrap it up right here. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself do not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, on the one, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, is the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I want you to remember those words. I myself did not what? Did not know him. I did not know him. See, John himself says that he didn't know Jesus. Wow, and that just kills me about John too. As popular as he was, as popular as he was, he could have just said, you know what? (laughs) Me and him, we're cousins. We're buds, man. We're like this. John admits that he doesn't even what? That he doesn't even know him. John wasn't in this for any of his glory. He wasn't in it for his gain. As a matter of fact, John is beheaded in prison, in prison, knowing only one thing, and that was Jesus' answer to his disciples. Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. The poor have good news preached to them. For once, for once in this world where the, the poor are left behind by the rules of the world, for once they've got good news preached to them. And here John is in prison and he benefits actually from Jesus' ministry physically on the world, in the world, none at all. Because just days after he hears those words, he's beheaded. His willingness to become least, his willingness to decrease as Jesus increases. Jesus' message does nothing for him in this world. He's not even healed by him. He isn't saved by him. He isn't rescued by him. He was born to be least and to carry out what he was to carry out, and then he was to die without ever receiving the worldly, if you will, benefits of healing, cleansing, liberating. Wow. We made a point about Job. Job says, even though he slay me, I will what? I will trust in him. Job still worshipped God even though there was no earthly reason to do so. It hit me in studying for this. John the Baptist was the same way. There was no earthly reason. There was no earthly benefit for this. As a matter of fact, it cost him his life. A life in the wilderness, eating wilderness food, wearing the strange wilderness uh, wardrobe, and doing nothing but baptizing and talking constantly about one who is to come after him, constantly being decreased, constantly being made the least, and then dying at the hands of a tyrant who beheads him because he doesn't want to embarrass himself in front of his party guests. There is no earthly reason for John to worship this Messiah. No earthly reason. But like Job, he does anyway. People who can worship God with no earthly benefit, to me, to me, are the greatest that humanity has to offer. That's why they're the greatest in the kingdom of the world.
John will be. But why he is the least in the kingdom of heaven is very interesting. Why he is the least in the kingdom of heaven is very interesting. Because John will be the last person to be called and to follow Jesus without knowing him. He's the last prophet to be come to by the Father before the Son is born. He's the last one to proclaim the prophet, I mean, to proclaim the Messiah and not know him personally. I think this is why Jesus says that that's why he's the least in the kingdom of heaven. Because everybody after John now, guess what? The way that you and I get to be in the kingdom is because we get to know him. We get to walk with him and talk with him. And by the way, we get to walk with him and talk with him because John smoothed the way and made the way for us. In a way, John gave his life so that you and I would be able to someday understand that that guy walking right there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, and one thing that we have to understand about knowing Jesus, you and I can boast all day long if we want to about being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because we get to know Christ. We get to walk with God personally because the word became flesh and walks and talks among us. We can boast all we want if you want to, but the one thing that you have to know is that he knows us. In John 1, he knows all about Nathaniel. He tells everything about him. And when he does that, when he says, I know him, I saw you sitting under the tree, Nathaniel says, wow, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the one. He knows all about Nathaniel. He knows all about Peter. In fact, he knows all about Peter and able to give him a nickname. He calls him Rocky. You're stubborn. You have a stone heart. He names him Rocky. He later, he says, he knows what's in Nicodemus' heart. He knows the Samaritan woman's heart. The message is, is that Jesus knows all about us, yet he still invites us to be citizens of his kingdom. The one thing that matters above all else is a knowing, living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only way that you and I get to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because of that living, breathing relationship is because the least went before us and paved the way. Anyone coming after John can be greater. Why? Because we can know him. And John never did. The only thing that matters is a true living relationship with Jesus. I hear people talk all the time. Boy, God saved me from this. God saved me from that. But you know what? We have people out there who have not had that kind of miracle performed in their life at all, ever. And they need to know that Jesus loves them too. And if we try to get across to them that God loves you because he does good things for you, then we're falling into the same trap that John's disciples fell in. The kingdom isn't out loud like that. It isn't up front. The kingdom is the relationship with Christ. And that you know that even if we find out that heaven is a myth, heaven actually will, be, will still be in the kingdom because the kingdom actually is walking with Christ and not some city that is supposed to descend after the millennium. Jesus comes and gets us, and he gets us all around. He goes, you know what? There's been a technicality. That city you guys all want, that mansion that you all want, I'm sorry, I couldn't pull it off. Then all of us, who number as the grains of sand, 
we'll all be able to say, hey, we're still citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We'll follow you wherever you go. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, come and see. The invitation to the kingdom is Jesus standing there saying, come and see. Again, like with every other part of this series, we don't want you to be on the outside of the kingdom one iota. We just ask you to heed his invitation today. Come and see. If you think it's because you don't belong, remember Jesus knows and he still says, come and see. The only reason any of us belong is because Jesus invited us, he gave us the kingdom, and he died to assure us that it can be ours. Don't walk one more day. Don't walk one more day living by the rules of this world. It's a cruel world with a harsh taskmaster, and there is no there there. I want to thank God today for our forerunner, the least in the kingdom of heaven, John the Baptist. How about you? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for paving the way for us. Thank you that you can assure us that our citizenship is ours because of Christ, because of John, because of all the people that have walked before us. We just pray that we see you more clearly, Lord. We pray that we would live by the rules of the kingdom of heaven in the, in the kingdom of the world so that the world would know, so that the world would understand. As we've talked before, Lord, minimize our words and maximize our love. Minimize our words and let us dispense grace. And then we will sit back and we will marvel at what you will do with your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for touching us with a man like John the Baptist. I thank you for the John the Baptist that we have in our midst, for he still walks, for, for his spirit still walks. And I thank you that I have many, many friends who live like he does for me. We thank you again, Lord, for the opportunity to be with you in the kingdom. We thank you for making a way. We just praise you. I just ask that you be with this family as they venture into this world. Keep us safe, Lord, from harm, from temptation. Bring us back together again to worship you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.